welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Elizabeth Beringer, Associate Professor of Law at Stetson University College of Law. We will discuss her article, Gut Renovations, Using Critical and Comparative Rhetoric to, re- to Remodel How the Law Addresses Privilege and Power, which is co-authored with Lucy Jewell and Terry A. McMurtry-Chubb. So welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thanks. Thanks for having me. No, I'm glad to have you on. Um, this is a really interesting, provocative paper about how legal rhetoric works and why we should be concerned about it. So I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about why that is. Sort of why is traditional legal rhetoric and the traditional forms we use something we should be concerned about? So in the law, we rely on uh, something called IRAC. And anybody who's who's been to law school uh, knows, or most anyone who's been to law school, I should say, um, has heard of that term. And it's um, the way we identify the issue and the governing rule. And then we apply that rule to a set of facts and we reach a conclusion. Um, And this way of thinking dates back to ancient Greek rhetors, um, Aristotle, Socrates, uh, they taught us, Cicero, they taught us that this was the way that you could present a persuasive argument, that this was the way to think. And if we look at the structure of that society, this mode of thinking privileged the dominant class. It was a very patriarchal, white-dominated Um, society that excluded voices um, of outsiders, um, including women, children, uh, people, barbarians, quote unquote, um, from other cultures. And we've adopted this style of reasoning um, within the law, our, uh, the law itself. And what, what we theorize is that the mode of reasoning itself is infected with this white male dominated patriarchal worldview and that the mode of reasoning, the the legal syllogism itself is um, something that um, perpetuates bias and inequity in the law. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about how that works. Like exactly why is this style perceived as being effective? Um, what does it miss? And how precisely do you think it reflects a particular worldview and maybe doesn't reflect other worldviews? With regard to how it operates, um, it's it's pretty easy to understand if we think about the legal syllogism. Um, so I mentioned Iraq before. Um, we've also got um, this idea of having a major premise, which is usually the governing rule and the minor premise, which usually involves a lot of facts, and that if we just simply identify the right categories that belong in the major premise and the right categories that belong in the minor premise, that we'll reach a logical conclusion. And the classic example of this is um, all men are mortal is our major premise. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. And in in um, implicit in that is that these categories can be clearly defined. That there is this theory of transitivity where um, 
the the words that we use and the major premise and the minor premise um, are interconnected and very cleanly lead to um, to a conclusion. There's been lots of research that. First of all, categories are not uh, clean, clean um, or clear cut, um, that there's a, a lot of debate about how to even define these categories. Um, and, and, and then once they, they are defined, whether there truly is um, transitivity um, amongst those categories. And if we focus in particular on um, the major premise and uh, the the governing rule of law. How do we identify the governing rule of law? For centuries, the only group in our country who was allowed to define what the law was were elite white men, um, property owners, um, were the ones who were allowed to be legislators. Um, it's barely been a century since women gained the right to vote. Um, we haven't had legislators who are women um, or who are people of color for very long compared to our overall history. And additionally, if you start looking at a lot of the laws that are currently on the books today, many of them can be traced back to laws that have been on the books since the late 1700s and 1800s. And so when we start to look at it from that perspective, even though we have women and people of color who are um, legislators these days, um, the, the laws that we're getting, um, the laws that we're working with are still being derived from laws that were exclusively written by elite white men and often to privilege this their class and to preserve their power. Um, and so when we take these laws that they've written and we privilege them as the major premise and use them to define um, the right, quote unquote, categories under the law, um, you can start to see where the outcome, the only logical outcome would seem to privilege um, an outcome in favor of the elite white man who has written the rules of the game, so to speak. Well, so then is part of the problem that the sort of forms of legal rhetoric maybe discourage us from questioning those major premises and maybe prevent us from seeing alternative ways of conceptualizing how we structure social relationships? That's exactly, that's exactly right. Um, it, it, the traditional forms of uh, rhetoric emphasize the correctness um, and justness of the law, um, no matter the outcome, whereas other traditions of rhetoric may look to community-based solutions, for example, or may privilege um, relationships um, amongst the parties as opposed to um, a governing abstract rule of law. Well, so in the paper, you give some examples of at least moments in which judges and or lawyers were able to reframe or use alternative rhetorical forms to avoid that kind of blinkered thinking. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, sort of maybe give an example and and talk about why and how it works. Sure. The um, second major section of the paper goes into 
um, a lot of detail um, about how, how, how these structures work. And ultimately, I, I think um, there are limitations to some of these strategies because they're still operating within the structures. Um, but some of the strategies that I've um, identified um, include something called uh, invisibilization. Um, I also talk about boldness. And um, I talk about flattery. And these are just three examples that I found um, uh, particularly um, to be particularly good examples uh, in the case of Gideon versus Wainwright. So these techniques, and, and there are others that exist out in the legal universe, they um, are obvious in cases where the courts have... Um, made a major change in the law. And so Gideon uh, is what is a case that um, was a major change in um, how um, uh, lawyers were appointed to indigent defendants in criminal cases. And so you might see um, some of these techniques in other cases like Brown versus Board of Education, which abolished the doctrine of um, separate but equal, um, a case like Loving versus Virginia, um, and in any other, uh, you know, seminal case where we see um, a major change. And, and basically what happens is there has to be some sort of um, sort of drastic um, attention getting um, interruption in the um, argument such that the reader or the judge is willing to allow a category to be deconstructed. Um, so it's that the judge is willing to say, for example, that the major premise is just not correct. And so we see that very clearly in Gideon versus Wayne, uh, Wainwright, um, the boldness as an interrupter, for example, um, at the very beginning of the case and just, um, very abruptly, um, Abe Fortas, who represented Gideon, um, said, we cannot urge that the circumstances presented by the case are special rather than typical. The petitioner is not illiterate, mentally incompetent, or inexperienced. And what he's doing there is highlighting and emphasizing all of the ways that the law, as it's written, would require exactly the outcome that occurred. And normally you don't want to emphasize just how badly you lose under the law. Um, that's, that's not typically your winning strategy. Normally you identify the law and you want to try to find a way to distinguish yourself or show, um, you know, that for whatever reason, the law doesn't apply to you. And here, what Abe Fortas was trying to do was argue the law is wrong. And um, here are all of the reasons why it's wrong. Um, and he very boldly um, shows uh, these facts about Gideon um, to really emphasize, I think, to create um, a, a sense of urgency about why it's time for the court um, to reexamine um, this rule, this rule of law. It does a similar thing with the invisibilization in this particular case. Um, invisibilization a Fortis hides Gideon. Um, he puts his facts in an appendix. And 
for anyone who's ever taught a legal writing course, you know that the the first thing you tell um, all of your students is humanize and personalize your client. You never want to put the facts in an appendix. Uh, you want the court to find some way to connect with um, with your client. And so putting the facts in an appendix seems very counterintuitive. It doesn't seem like it should be the right um, decision. Uh, But in this case, Gideon was not particularly sympathetic. And the underlying crime did not have much to do with the question of whether or not he should have been um, appointed um, counsel, at least not the way that Abe Fortas was making the argument. Normally, the type of crime did have an impact. It was a consideration in whether or not you had a special circumstance worthy of appointment of an attorney. But what Abe Fortas had already argued was that um, there shouldn't have to be proof of these special circumstances. And so by hiding Gideon's facts and by not talking about the crime with which he was charged, he was able to create emphasis around this idea of um, of every man deserving representation when they're charged with um, with a crime. And I think probably the most powerful tool that Abe Fortas was able to deploy was flattery. And throughout the brief, you can actually see him deploying this strategy where he's constantly appealing to the ego of the judge and um, reminding the court that, you know, attorneys have a job. It, you know, if, if we're saying that anybody charged with a crime can represent himself or herself. What are we saying about the value of lawyers? And we, you know, we all know that no lawyer would ever represent himself or herself uh, when charged with a crime. We don't represent ourselves. How can we expect um, an indigent defendant to do um, something that is so highly specialized um, and so difficult? And so those are the three that I um, that I identify here here in the brief. So one thing I was wondering was what would a sort of approach to Gideon structured in relation to sort of traditional legal legal rhetoric have looked like, do you think? And why would it have been ineffective under those circumstances? That's a great question. And you see a good example of it in the respondent's brief that was filed in Gideon versus Wainwright. It's it's a perfect brief. Um, if, if a student produces that by the end of uh, a year of legal writing, the professor feels you know, like the student has, um, has learned something. <laughs> That's a win. And it is set up um, so perfectly identifying the issue, followed by the rule, um, it then applies the rule, and then it reaches a conclusion. And so it begs the question, if Gideon's um, respondent, if the respondent briefing Gideon is perfect um, and, and it follows this traditional syllogism, then why didn't <laughs> then why why didn't the respondent win? Um, I think there were a few things at play here. One is the Supreme Court was ready to reconsider the special circumstances test. And it had said so. Um, It specifically asked the attorneys to address this issue. And so there's an, um, you know, 
the, the attorneys knew the audience was primed to rule in Gideon's favor um, in this case. Um, but I think that where the the respondent's brief um, fell short was that it first started off by applying the existing rule of Gideon, um, or excuse me, the, spe- the existing rule of the special circumstances test before it addressed the question of whether the rule was correct. And it never really effectively addressed um, that question. And um, Abe Fortas addressed that question first. So following up on that, I I can't help but wonder whether the alternative rhetorical approaches that were so successful in Gideon are currently generalizable or kind of more limited to the kinds of particular historical and political uh, circumstances that you describe. And if they're not generalizable, is that a problem? Should we be concerned about that? I I think that it is um, something that we should be aware of, that it may not be generalizable. I think that um, in the Supreme Court context, the, the cases that make their way there are primed for uh, deviations from this standard um, Western traditional Western rhetorical way um, of thinking. And so um, applying these strategies in that context is, is different than what we might do at the trial court level or at an intermediate appellate court. Um, I think that using um, strategies that deviate from traditional Western rhetoric um, creates a lot of unpredict- uh, unpredictability for lawyers. I think it makes it harder to implement um, stare decisis. I think it forces the courts um, to take a more case-by-case approach to um, justice and equality um, when it's making decisions about individual cases. And I think that there's a risk that um, there will be inherent um, unfairness in this. But I think that we also allow ourselves to buy into the myth that traditional rhetoric makes things more fair um, because we know that we still have a lot of inequality. Um, There's a lot of injustice that still happens. We see a lot of um, what seem to be irreconcilably different outcomes um, in cases involving different races, for example, um, or different genders um, or different um, ethnicities. And so um, while I think it's a concern that we should keep in mind um, whether this is generally applicable, I also feel like um, the same concerns actually exist under the traditional rhetoric um, viewpoint as well. Well, so you you suggest in in the paper that if we care about justice and equality, and I certainly hope we do, then we should be concerned about the kind of unconscious expectation that legal argumentation take this sort of traditional um, syllogistic form. If that's true, how do we, practically speaking, 
change expectations and change practices? In other words, how do we get judges and maybe lawyers as well to think differently about how they make arguments and how they understand what's at stake when arguments are made? This is a question that my husband, who's a lawyer, asks me all the time. <laughs> we we have this conversation uh, a lot. And the truth is, I don't have all of those answers yet. It's one of the reasons why Lucy and Terry and I are continuing to work together um, on uh, on this project. But one way um, that that I do think we can start to make inroads here and that we can start to have these conversations is to bring critical rhetoric and um, comparative rhetoric uh, to the forefront in the legal arena. Um, These are areas that have not traditionally been studied. And so a lot of people don't know, for example, um, what indigenous rhetoric is or what African diasporic rhetoric even is. And so creating space to have conversations and develop knowledge and to create fluency with some of these rhetorics that could um, um, provide uh, uh, frameworks for for reasoning um, amongst uh, lawyers and judges and legal decision makers. I think that's that's one step. Um, I think raising the question about how we define what the law is and who gets to say what the law is um, is another way that we can do that. So in the law school setting, for example, I work a lot with my students about um, uh, framing the rule how they um, structure it, is there room to change that? So for example, if they're um, working uh, on a very fact-intensive case, we work on um, how they might define a factors test that can help the reader um, conceptualize what are the major categories um, that they're working with. And this is obviously still within the framework of traditional rhetoric, um, but it's starting to show that there's there's some creativity um, that goes along with this process. Um, some, sometimes I teach a problem that may involve um, a balancing test, and we talk about whether that can be reframed as um, a, ru- a, a rule with an exception, and how does that change um, the reader's understanding of how much power the judge has to make a decision in the case, or which way um, the, the the case uh, should turn, or uh, whether the rules should be more strictly construed against one side than um, than the other. So, so just generally thinking about the malleability and how it is that we define um, the governing uh, norms. Um, rules of law, and also customs and policies that drive outcomes in a case. I wonder if you could give an example of an alternative rhetorical approach that lawyers might choose to use or that judges should be receptive to in a context where it might be effective and helpful at advancing the kinds of social goals we're concerned about. 
So the last part of our article that Terry was primarily responsible for writing um, gives a, a good example of how to use um, an Afro-Latinx-centric um, approach for uh, teaching uh, some of these alternative rhetoric um, paradigms. And she takes a uh, potential uh, employment discrimination case, and she tells a story uh, of a potential client um, and these, what may seem like subtle um, discriminatory practices. And they may even, um, from an outsider, they may even look like uh, the supervisor was just trying to help uh, this employee. And that might be a narrative um, within our traditional paradigm that, um, would resonate when we look at what the factors are in a discrimination claim um, or what the court would be required to consider. None of the facts that uh, Ms. Grayman has um, that Terry is included in this article, none of those would really give rise um, to a claim. And so it's someone who were to take Ms. Grayman on as a client would have to really understand um, her background and her culture in order to explain why the employer's actions created a hostile environment and how it would have violated um, uh, the law. Because the law itself, um, situating this around the legal standard, would not have, um, would, would not lead to a result in Ms. Grayman's favor. It would not, the law as we understand it in our Western world um, wouldn't cause us to think that this was harassment or discrimination of any sort. And so using the um, Latinx rhetoric uh, would help to uh, demonstrate how Ms. Grayman has um, a colorable claim here. So Elizabeth, in closing, I wonder how we can teach these alternative forms of rhetoric as as legal academics because the paper reminded me that you know in classes where I'm teaching writing which I try to integrate into all of of my classes I, I find that students are really drawn to or or feel compelled to engage in the kind of traditional uh, legal rhetoric that, you describe, and it makes it very hard for them to sort of see, understand, or appreciate like the deeper problems that are at stake in the questions that they're being asked to address and argue. I wonder if there are kind of practical tips or thoughts you have about how to sort of help students see the way in which the way they structure their paper is also structuring the kinds of arguments they're capable of making. Yes, definitely. So um, one thing that um, that we're doing, Terry's uh, been working on this at her institution. She's um, developing an entire curriculum for how to incorporate these um, these ideas, these strategies um, across the curriculum. Um, and so she's uh, developing a series of uh, sort of videos and um, 
um, short vignettes on on how you might be able to teach these. Uh, one thing that I do is I study master briefs. So I study the Gideon briefs, for example. I look at um, Loving versus Virginia, exposing students to alternative um, ways of thinking and organizing, um, but also just you know in class in through that Socratic method, starting to ask questions about. Um, who who is narrating this story, the story of this case? Whose perspective um, is not being valued? Whose perspectives are we missing entirely? Um, who um, had an interest in the outcome of this case? Um, there's a great project um, called the um, um, Feminist Judgments, and I don't know if you've read any of um, any of those, but essentially um, they're collections of, of cases, um, opinions that have been rewritten from a feminist jurisprudence perspective. And um, I think those are great examples of how um, other um, ways of thinking, other perspectives um, can really influence and change outcomes. And the interesting thing about that project is that every case is confined um, to the, a library of resources that existed at the time that that case was written. Um, and, um, you know, for most of us in the law, um, especially professors, we, we tend to feel more comfortable with the gray areas. We know that there can be good arguments made on both sides and that very rarely is um, something, you know, black and white, right or wrong. Um, that dichotomy is is not so pure. But for law students, um, that can that can feel dangerous. It can feel um awkward um, and uncomfortable to question that. And so having them read the original opinion alongside of um, one of the feminist um, um, judgments rewrites would be a really good exercise for exposing them to what that um, might look like. And it might also be a fun writing uh, experience for them to have them rewrite uh, uh, an opinion in a certain style. So if you're exposing them to some critical race theory, for example, um, having them rewrite an opinion with a critical race um, uh, uh, viewpoint might be a good exercise for helping them to implement some of these ideas. Excellent. Those are all great ideas. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Elizabeth, and sharing this excellent paper with my listeners. I hope they'll check it out once it's published and available. Wonderful. Yes, I'll get you the um, site as soon as we have it, but we are looking forward to it coming out in the uh, Harvard Latinx Law Review very soon. Mamita, ven, 
Agárrate, no me dejes, por favor, que ya está aquí, lo veo venir, es el plato volado, si fue no fue, incierto es, lo que el plato removió, dicen que sí, dicen que no, que te mata que llegó. Dicen que Don Torcuato, que es hombre muy singular, estando ayer de merienda, a un plato vio de pasar, bajaron de los marcianos y de esto se aprovechó, pues en aquel aparato a su suegra la metió. Mamita, ven, agárrate, no me dejes, por favor, que ya está aquí, lo veo venir, es el plato volado. Si fue no fue, bien cierto es lo que el plato removió. Dicen que sí, dicen que no, que del mar de aquí llegó. También hay muchos pollitos que mira si pueden ver algún marciano valiente que los pueda proteger, pero no saben los pobres que el Marte no entrarán, ni de no sé ni de día, los que son mi temita, mamita ven, agárrate, no me dejes por favor, que ya está aquí, lo veo venir, es el plato volado. Fue no fue, incierto es lo que el plato removió. Dicen que sí, dicen que no, que te 